The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Gayet, publisher of Lead Lag Report, and our special guest for the hour, Leland Miller, China Beige Book. So Leland, listen, I appreciate you joining. Before we get too deep into what's happening with China, just set the stage as far as your background, who you are, and what you do. Sure. So I am the CEO and founder of a company called China Beige Book, which set out over a decade ago to try to provide the world's only independent read on the Chinese economy. We've spent years looking at official Chinese statistics. I think people have come to the conclusion after many, many years of looking at them that that not all are uh, reliable and should be used for for important things like investment, strategic planning. But beyond that, the larger problem is that there's just not enough data on the Chinese economy. If you want to be doing something dynamic, you want to be expanding your franchise, you want to be understanding the, the policy and macro headwinds, there's just not enough information coming out of China. So what we decided to do, you know, back in 2010, was put together a large-scale private survey network that was surveying back then thousands, now many, 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 many thousands of Chinese firms across the entire economy, uh, across all the key sectors, across all the key, just uh, sub- 37 discrete subsectors, across all the geographic regions. And we designed it to not have any biases in the same way that the, the various PMIs do. So we're, we don't, or we're not biased towards large firms or state firms or coastal firms. Uh, we're not biased towards small firms or private firms or firms on the periphery. We try to paint a picture of all of China, not just the one China that usually gets reported, which is what happens in Beijing or what happens in Shanghai with larger firms, state firms. We want to have a picture of all of China. And beyond just the growth picture, it's important to understand things that are going on in inflation. We're finding out that in spades the last couple of years. The labor market, what's happening at jobs? Because when you look at from the policy side, what the Beijing really cares about when they're making policy is not the PMI, not the GDP number, but but the jobs number. What's that kind of job stability do they have? And I guess most important of all is credit. So what's happening in the credit markets What's happening in the shadow credit markets? You know, how is the government stimulating these or not stimulating? And what is it seeing that makes it think that it can stimulate or, or doesn't want to stimulate? So these are questions that are hitting us pretty hard in the last several months as, as everyone's trying to call pivot and China credit policy. But, you know, we're, we're happy to be doing what we're doing. And it couldn't be more of an exciting place to be in watching China run. So give us a sense of the kinds of questions that go into that survey and how is it 
How does it give you a quantitative sense of what's happening? Yeah, so we approach it um, the same way other surveys have, including PMIs. You know, we ask, have things gone up, down, or stayed the same? So generally, we're looking at corporate metrics like profits and revenues and cash flow sales volumes you know we look at we look at sales prices and input prices and, and, and wages so we're trying to figure out whether things are going up down or sideways it's aggregated over you know tens of thousands of firms over a given year you know back when we were starting we were a quarterly survey and we were doing you know 1200 firms a quarter everyone thought this was this amazing you know how could we even get that many you know now we're doing roughly that number per month and uh, and we're releasing it uh, more often so we uh, we're trying to do is we're trying to get a big picture of china we're trying to get the directional story right but we're also trying to point macro pivot points sectoral pivot points. And uh, occasionally there's questions where we ask for very specific answers like cost of capital. We want to know how much firms are paying. So, but, but generally speaking, we're, we, it's a series of diffusion indices. Are the, and I'm just thinking out loud here, are the answers anonymous or do you know who, where they're coming from? The only reason I ask that is, you know, maybe there might be some concern by respondents that the Chinese government might be seeing how they're answering these things. So how does that get reported to you? Yeah, we wouldn't. We will never. You know, we, everything is is uh, is completely anonymized. You know, in this day and age, there is incredible privacy concerns and privacy security. You know, everyone's really worried about this type of stuff. One of the reasons we were able to do you know what we've done is that we weren't just a bunch of China experts who landed on the ground in Beijing and brought out a yellow notepad and started asking questions and surveying. We, we, you know, we were put together in large part by people who are professional pollsters, professional survey experts. They know how to gather information. They know the proper way to do, you know, to do information gathering. You know, it's so, so there are, you know, very, very clear boundaries on this. And, you know, we're never trying to get at the underlying company. What we're trying to do is get the aggregate picture because the individual responses are only significant when they're aggregated into something much larger, which is which is a you know a broad picture of how the economy writ large is operating. Right. So sort of a, a wisdom of crowds approach. So so based on that, how divergent are the surveys from what you see on the official public data, right? How big is that that spread? Yeah, so it depends. It depends. You know, when we were looking at the COVID lockdowns and then China's rather remarkable, remarkably quick recovery out of the first COVID Locked out shutdowns, I guess, in, in, you know, January, February, March, 2020. You know, we saw a lot of the same things that official data showed. So they, you know, coming out of the lockdowns, they, they rushed manufacturing back up. There was an, an industrial side factories were opening up quick. They're getting back up to capacity. Workers were getting shipped back to, to their factories. You know, work weeks were being extended. And so on the, in, the industry side of the economy, you saw big things happening. And on, the other side of the economy, you're looking at retail and services and other things. You know, they were they were they were hit very very hard as they are, you know, everywhere where COVID strikes. So I think with the initial picture we got of the Chinese economy and the Chinese recovery from COVID was very similar to what official data showed, and that was interesting. Now they they claimed that there was 2.6 percent year on year GDP growth. You know, a number of weeks and months after the the lockdown, that was nonsense. There was there was no year-on-year GDP growth anywhere around that time. But the general story was pretty similar to what we saw and what they saw. Now, we start to go very divergent ways quickly enough because you know, when we looked at our, basically all everyone as they saw China economy get back up to speed and then move forward, there was this widespread expectation that there would be a you know consumer spending surge, that the recovery would normalize, 
industry was fine, but then retail and services would get back up to normal. And then you'd have a you know economy running like it used to. And so there was widespread expectation, all kinds of consumer spending surge and, 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 and bigger numbers. And, and, and we didn't see any of that. Uh, you know, we saw some of the weakest retail data we've ever seen in the history of the survey in, in mid-2021. Sure enough, you know, it was on a lag, but then, you know, China's retail numbers came out and, and you know, everyone was shocked and we weren't. So, so in that case, we had this story, but it was just happened to be several months ahead of when everyone else got the memo. Uh, and then there's other times in which, you know, we see something that's that's very different than, than what's being reported. And, uh, you know, this happens occasionally. But one of the things about the Chinese government smoothing out a lot of their numbers is when you when you take out the downturns, then you also take up the corresponding upturns. So at any given time, our information, our data may be a little bit better than official data. It may be a little bit worse than official data or maybe altogether different. So it's a, it's a very much a, a, a different story each time. And from a We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now back to our discussion. Practicality perspective. Is there a leading nature to your findings when it comes to the Chinese stock market? Obviously, you know, that that's that's a loaded question, right? Because it depends on the mm-hmm. lag, right? But but talk to it from a practicality perspective. How do how do maybe some of your clients look through their sur- those surveys, those conclusions, and determine what to do with it. Yeah, so stocks are interesting because there is no historical correlation, the real economy and the stock market over time. You know, it's not in our data, not in official data, not in any da- data out there. You know, the, the, the stock market operates as a very different beast than the real economy. So from that sort of 30,000 foot perspective, the answer is no, you know, we don't, we don't, we, you know, we're not predicting moves into A shares or out of A shares and, and similar things. However, you know, what's the biggest story of the past year? The, the, you know, the biggest story, at least to the past half year plus, has been, you know, why, why no stimulus in China? Why has everyone been calling for stimulus? And, you know, look back at what happened last fall. A lot of big name institutions were calling, you know, the, the, the beginning of the party Congress run up. So, you know, as, as everyone knows, 2022 is a huge politically sensitive year for China. Xi Jinping in, in, in October, November is going to be going for a third term, maybe more. And every five years you have these party congresses. And historically, that has been a massive, massive, you know, stimulus period. So the monetary spigots get turned on, big time fiscal spending, infrastructure gets built out. There's a there's a rhetorical talk up of the stock market. Everyone gets in, great things happen. And that's what people are used to. And I think a lot of people out there at these institutions were just assuming, hey, this could be another, this could be another big year for stocks and another big year for stimulus because that's what we're used to. But when we were looking at our credit data, not just you know, earlier in the year, but straight through the middle of the year, straight to the end of it, straight into 2022, we saw the tightest conditions we've ever seen by far the China Beige Book Survey. So there was nothing percolating under the surface. There was never the the possibility that they were starting up, you know, a big credit easing move. You know, it was, if you look at what, what firms were actually reporting, if you look at what conditions actually were on the ground, then it totally undercut the idea that we were moving into a traditional, you know, big time 2022 stimulus, you know, 
party Congress year of, of big stimulus. But that didn't stop everybody from trying to be the person or the firm, you know, or the or the talking head on CNBC or Bloomberg that called the pivot. And so what you saw in September and then again in December, a lot of firms saying, go all in, go all in to, 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 to A shares, go in the stock market. We have a good feeling about this. And then when they didn't see anything happen at the beginning of the year, they said, let's double down. You double down, we've got a really good feeling about this still. Enormous wealth has been lost by following these instructions because they weren't based on data. They weren't based on any Thing that was actually happening on the ground. They were based on this idea that you know China watchers for 20 years have been taught that the Chinese like to juice growth and that they like to juice growth a lot in a in a party congress year. And so let's get ahead of this curve and and pretend we're doing research, pretend we're we're showcasing our data and urge clients to go in. And then you know we'll claim that that our that we we show them the way. But what's happening is the economic growth model in China's changed. The the economic policy playbook has changed. The stimulus playbook has changed. The priority on high growth at all costs has changed for the Chinese leadership. And because of that, you're getting a lot of predictions, a lot of particularly bullish, particularly going to the stock market type predictions that we've heard over the last, you know, two, four, six months that have been not just wrong, but just just disaster stories. And presumably that's because of inflation, I'm going to assume, right? That the Chinese government views inflation as more dangerous than the benefit of stimulus from a political election standpoint. So maybe that's a good pivot. Inflation's, of course, on everybody's mind in the U.S., but how's that picture looking in in China? Because a lot of the discussions around inflation are around cost push, supply chains. But in terms of the local population in China, how does that picture look from, from what you've seen? Yeah, not nearly as bad as everyone thinks. So, you know, in 2021, one of the big questions for markets was, you know, can China control potential inflation? You know, it, it, it was it was a global question, but it was a real question for China because there was such a reliance on commodities. And what we showed straight through 2021 was that they were able to get to it very, very well that you did see inflationary pressures in a very narrow channel, which was the commodities, the manufacturing and property channel, which which the government stepped in to control at, at times, but kept inflation manageable, even though you saw some big PPI prints along the way. But in terms of broader inflation, you, you never had broader uh, inflation for consumers. You did not have broader inflation for production outside this channel, uh, and so the inflation story was never quite as worrisome as people were, you know, as p- people were focused on. I think the, you know the, the the Chinese government is probably very happy with the job they did in 2021. You know, when we talk about the reason, you know, you said inflation was a was a reason that that, that has made them hesitant on stimulus. You know, that's 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 part of it. That's certainly part of the recipe. But I I think there's even something bigger at play, and that something bigger at play is the fact that the Chinese economic growth model has changed. You know, it's it's run out of road and it's not disintegrated as much as the party has identified that the vulnerabilities in this economic growth model are a real threat to long term party governance, to, you know, party control. And so they have stepped in over the past you know year and a half and actively slowed the economy down. And I think that's underappreciated by people. You know, you had a massive financial sector de-risking and, and starting late 2020, early 2021. It's, it's we're still seeing it. We saw property sector de-risking, which which went on everybody's radar because of the Evergrande crisis was was impossible to to escape that as as being this big, scary headline. But what's been happening is is there's been a real move away from reckless credit expansion and this stimulus playbook, which used to inform outsiders that, hey, every time the Chinese government sees weak data or feels insecure, they're just going to stimulate the heck out of the economy. And we're moving away from that. And we're moving away from that in large part because the, the, the Chinese Communist Party wants to move away from that. So a lot of what we're seeing right now, certainly inflation 
is a factor. Certain uh, you know dynamics of global central bank hiking, that's a factor. But I think that the number one reason you haven't seen big stimulus in 2022 is because that's no longer the way that Xi Jinping wants to run his economy. All right. So let's talk about the property side for a moment, because as you noted, everyone had Evergrande on their minds and then suddenly forgot about it two days later. Talk through you know sort of the reality of real estate in China and how you think they, they are able to avoid contagion. Because everyone obviously goes to the 08 crisis, right? That's obviously the first thing that goes to when they think about China, but but set the record straight on that. Yeah, well, the, the first thing we put out, right, is that, you know, even before Evergrande hit the headlines, because actually we, we we knew this was coming and we knew this was coming because when you look in China based book data, not just for the third quarter, for the second quarter, we saw severe distress in the property sector. You know, everyone says, oh, defaults are this bellwether, defaults are the signal. Defaults are not the signal people think they are because they're stage managed, they're politically approved, there's not that many of them. The real bellwether, the real signal of stress in in the Chinese economies related to capital raising. And what we saw in the second quarter were property firms at an incredibly high rate being tossed out of the traditional banking system. They couldn't access capital. Loan rejections hit the highest level we've ever seen inside the property sector, and they're being they're being forced to run scrambling into, into the shadow finance system. And that happened again in the third quarter. And so saw two straight quarters where there was a very clear push from the government side to restrict capital to property firms, to most property firms. Firms that were accessing were paying more. Firms that were accessing in the shadow finance system were paying much more. And so, you know, you had this system where, where they were really engineering a very different dynamic inside the property sector. Now, what was happening there? You know, if you step back from the little picture and you go back to the big picture, what they're trying to do is, is do away with property um, as this, this sector, which they utilize the cre- reckless credit expansion in order to juice growth levels. So what you've seen for years is, you know, the government sets a, a target, a GDP target, and, you know, the economy's cruising along and it's not going to hit that target without without some more juice. And so you give a lot of money to the, pro- you know, you, 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 a, lot of, a lot of credit goes in, into the property sector. There's an about infrastructure boost. They're building a lot of things. Some of them are bridges to nowhere. Some of them are legitimate, but, you know, you see lots and lots of capital just flowing into property. That gets the growth numbers up and they hit their growth number. But what happens over time is that so much of that credit is going into non-productive uses that, You've got a real problem with with non-performing loans over time. And, you know, anyone who studied China knows that non-performing loans are this gigantic looming shadow over the economy. But what I think it's important here is not whether, you know, we think, outsiders think, non-Chinese think that we we're, we're approaching some sort of limit to this. It's that the party itself is worried enough about it that they decided to downshift property. And so property was decided they don't know it's no longer to be this sector that is going to be, you know, bloated balloon. They're going to try to deflate it. And they're they're not going to want to cause systemic havoc, but they need to teach people, need to teach firms, need to teach borrowers that the credit's not always going to be there. And they need to act more economically, <laughs> like a real market economy. So we've seen this move to deflate the property sector. And we saw it months and months and months before Evergrande. But the reason that Evergrande, so I've talked about why Evergrande is the problem, it's causing dislocations. But the reason Evergrande was never going to become you know, a systemic contagion is that the, the Chinese system is not a commercial financial system. The Chinese economy does not is not based on a, a commercial financial system like the West is. What you have is a, a situation where basically the party controls all the counterparties in the economy. They can, you know, they can tell you know, if you have a stop up, 
you know, what was what was Lehman? Lehman was a, a counterparty freeze in part. You know, nobody wanted to lend to each other. No one wanted to to buy from each other. No, you know, no one knew what anything anything was happening. You don't have that in China because China can order all the counterparties interact. The buyers, you tell them to buy. The lenders to lend. The suppliers to supply. And you keep the economy moving that way. Now, that's great in terms of avoiding an acute crisis when people were worried about systemic contagion. That was that was never in the cards. But what it does over time is it, you know, it creates a lot of non-productive growth and it, and it sort of descends you into a stasis of, uh, you know, zero growth, zero growth environment. So it, it hurts you over time. And I think that's what the what the party is worried about now, that there's been too much of that and there needed to be movement away from that old economic. I wonder if you think people underestimate how much control they have, right? Because from a U.S. perspective, it sounds crazy to think that a government has that much accuracy when it comes to a very large economy. I think they do underestimate. I think people, I think outsiders, that's one of the big misconceptions on China. They, there's a lot of people out there who said, oh, well, the U.S. had its, you know, 2008 and Europe's had its 2008, so that type of crisis. Well, China's next. You know, Japan's, Japan, who knows? But China's next. And I think the, what they're what they're overlooking is the fact that China is a non-commercial financial system, and as a result, it it can order counterparties to do things. It can ensure that that you know, for instance, forget rule of law. If you need a big tidal wave of capital to flow from one side of the economy to another to patch up holes in defaulting firms or in other problems, you know, asset management companies that need more capital infusion, whatever it might be, you just order that capital move from one side to the other. It's just sort of swishing back and forth. Now, again, that's really, really helpful when you're trying to avoid an acute crisis. But in terms of long-term trajectory, what that does is is good money is constantly chasing is after bad. You know, you're constantly increasing non-productive growth and your productive productivity slides over time and your non-performing loans go up. And, you know, like I said, I think we're at the point where the party has said enough is enough. We don't know when there may be a formal end. The system would crumble, but we don't want to ever get to that point because we want to stay in control forever. So they're moving proactively away from this model. And because they're moving proactively away from the model, they're governing different than they had in the past. And this is why all these China watchers out there looking for a repeat of 2016, 2017, or, or some other historical example they're basing their model on, they're going to be wrong. They're wrong now. They're going to be wrong in the future. China is slowing down much more precipitously than people understand. It's going to slow down much more in the future than people understand. And when you, know, you look at growth going forward, GDP number is going to be an entirely political number. And it, you know, people laugh when I say that. say, wait, wait, wait. You, know, you started your company over 10 years ago. You were saying that back then. True. There's always, it's, you know, Chinese numbers, Chinese economic numbers have always been political. But going forward, they're going to be entirely political because if you actually de-risk your economy full bore the way that we were talking and you didn't have any worries about social instability or anger at the government or defaults and other things, you just wanted to get to the end. And, you know, China would be going at growing at, say, one or two percent growth you know, at the end of the decade. Let's say two, three percent growth because it gets people less upset. So any number that they'll be growing over that means they're just dipping back in their old playbook. They're juicing things enough because they want to make sure optically that they're looking like they're control. They're, they're easing things down. They have a domestic audience to play to. They have an international audience to play to. So whatever number above, you know, say two percent will be how much they dip back into their old playbook. And that will be based on you know, how comfortable they feel with their own economy, how, how the global economy is looking, or what's the you know, global trade look like? Is there a trade war going on? Is it, how, what's geopolitically happening? And so it's, I think people have not yet, by and large, shifted their attention to the new way China's going to operate and the much lower growth China's going to have in the years ahead. You know, they're still stuck with these IMF and World Bank predictions which say, oh, you know, 
will go down ten, one tenth of a percentage point in GDP a year from now, and then maybe two tenths of a percentage point in GDP two years from now. That's the old model. That's dead. It, it, it's going to be wrong. No, we haven't talked to the yuan or the yen yet. So this is this is you know fresh territory. You know anyone who follows us on Twitter, I hope I hope everybody knows that you know we've we've had our thoughts on the yen and 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 Kuroda, despite the fact that you know people didn't think he could possibly withstand this, but he, but he has. So there's an interesting question down the road about you know how the how the Chinese view what's happening in Japan. But let's look at the yuan straight away. The, the yuan is not a free floating currency. It is pegged to the dollar. Now I know people think it's pegged to the basket or it, it's pegged to the dollar. That's the way to look at it. And it has been range bound for years and years and years. Now, my, my friends in the Forex world say, oh, it's a big range. You know, they've gone down to 6'2 and they've gone up to 6'9. Well, look, there's a political range that's acceptable for the currency. And maybe the PBOC wants to throw things off a little bit. They don't want to, it's to be a one dimension, one directional trade. So they'll put a little bit of excitement into it. But there's there's a window to which, a range to which they're going to keep the currency pegged versus the dollar. Now, a couple of things could happen to upset that apple cart. None of which have happened yet. And I don't think we're close to it yet. You know, the first thing is you could have a a surging US, you know, US dollar. We are seeing a dollar that's strengthening. And that's one of the reasons everyone's talking about the falling yuan. But the yuan's not really falling against the rest of the world. It's the dollar's rising. So what they're doing against that is you know, they're blowing off steam against the dollar, but they're not making major moves. They're not politically you know, de- depreciating, devaluing the, the the yuan versus versus all the rest of the curve. They're just trying to blow a little bit of steam against a very strong dollar. You know, so that scenario, they they want to keep it range bound unless something dramatic happens. You know, the other thing, of course, is if things absolutely fall apart domestically. So if you have some sort of Chinese economic crisis, you, you know, you, you have a, a full blown COVID crisis. You have something else, and, and growth falls off a cliff. There are scenarios in which you get to a point where where the leadership would probably break the glass. And then you move outside of the bounds. And you've seen in the past, you know, the Chinese have moved outside seven of the dollar and, you know, they 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 resisted it and then they did it and then they went back under. So there will be movement based on extraordinary circumstances with the dollar, with the Chinese economy, et cetera. But, but by and large, Beijing has one mandate for the PBOC and that is maintain relative stability. And they want to maintain these windows and they want to maintain a, a currency that's range bound because the Yuan and the Chinese financial system piggyback on the dollar and the American financial system and the Western financial system. So stability, 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 stability is the mandate. And that's, you know, anything outside of extraordinary circumstances, that that's that's pretty much what's happening. Uh, I like your word, necessity. The good thing about necessity is it's necessary. So they have no choice. So they're buying the bond. They want to diversify a little bit. They want to optically diversify even more than they're doing. You know, so they'll they'll be buying backdoor, you know, backdoor treasuries and other US government bonds through, you know, through the backdoor in Cayman or Belgium or Luxembourg, whatever it might be. By and large, they're they're stuck with the dollar. You know, they're stuck with investing. What what are the options to, to doing this? You're not going big in the eurozone right now. You're not going to the yen, the, the Japanese system, the JGB. So so what are you going to do? You know, you can diversify a little bit towards those those guys if you really wanted to. You could diversify a little bit to some of these commodity countries, which you know, with Australia and Canada and others, and and, and that's what the world's doing. But by and large, there is the reason the U.S. is still is still the global reserve currency and will be going forward indefinitely until something, you know, paradigm shifting happens is that there's really no other alternative. So, you know, the Chinese don't love doing this. It does give the U.S. some leverage, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, but it is necessary. And so this is the way it is for now. So it's not about wanting to be invested in dollar assets. It's a question of, is there any alternative to be to putting huge, your huge trade surplus into dollar assets? And the answer right now is no. 
I, I, I like Zoltan stuff. I, I, but you know, I, I think this thesis is nonsense. You know, and we, and we said so on, on, on Twitter when, when it came out. No, I don't, I don't think there's anything to that. I think you start getting your head spinning about, you know, the idea, the, this is idea that, okay, well, there's going to be some sort of China, Russia access focused on commodities and, and it, none, none of it really makes sense to me. I, I mean, I don't even really understand it, but certainly I, I don't think that there's some sort of mutuality of interest that, that, that'll, that'll lead us in that direction. So, you know, I, I, I don't want to comment too much on it because I, I looked at it a little bit, but I didn't, I didn't read the paper closely. I, I looked at the idea behind it. So no, I don't think it's likely, but I, I don't want to. I don't want to critique, critique someone else's paper that I haven't gone through with. With it, you know, that's like the anti-pundit response. By the way, trying desperately responsible. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, I love that question because you, you teed up exactly the direction I would love to steer this. So you're losing. We just talked about how the Chinese economy is losing the property sectors or drivers. So really, another way of, of just asking your question is like, what, what's the replacement growth driver? And the answer to that is there is not one. And that's why you're going to see much slower growth going forward. Now, if you read state media and you listen to policy pronouncements or you read a, a lot of the reports on the street that I'm not a huge fan of, you know, you, you get this sort of mushy idea that, that domestic consumption is going to rise from the ashes like a phoenix, and, and that will drive the Chinese economy going forward. But that has never made any sense. Um, and it hasn't just made sense because when we look at China Facebook data 10 years ago, when we look at it now, it was never good, and it's getting worse, and it's quite terrible actually right now. And so there has never been this shift to consumption. There has been a move away from investment which is part of which is part of what they said they're going to do. But there's never been sort of a shift towards a consumption, domestic consumption-led economy. And why is that? Well, structurally, they're doing nothing at all to incentivize, you know, a move to stronger domestic consumption. You know, one of the ways, you know, we talk about them being able to do this is they could, you know, materially appreciate the currency. So you could put more purchasing power in the pockets of households to spend. They're not doing that. You know, they're, you know, they want to keep the the yuan. I'm moving around. And right now it's it's going down before it went up, but they're keeping it stable. And that's very important for the financial system. So they're not going to toy with the yuan in order to 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 to, to give some sort of bonus to, to consumers and households out there. You know, what, what else could they do? They you could trade transfer all these wonderful state assets to the house, you know, to the private sector, the household sector. They're not doing that. They're doing the opposite right now. There's been this major centralization campaign, if anything, for, for for a number of years. At least the second half of you know she's she's ten years has been has been centralization more than anything else. So they're not doing that. You know, expand the safety net in a big way. And yeah, they're doing this in little ways, but is it enough to be able to not just shift things in this direction, but also overcome the enormous demographic headwinds? That we're seeing coming up, no, and it's not. It's not enough as is. It's certainly not going to change the structural dynamics in China. So this is this is what I, I I always say every time I see one of these nonsense reports about how the Chinese consumer this or the Chinese consumer that. It's a marketing ploy. It's a marketing ploy by people who are trying to get you invest into certain things in China. It's never been true. If they want to structurally incentivize domestic consumption, there are ways to do it, and they have not chosen to do it. 
And by and large, the reason they have chosen not to do it thus far is because it, they relinquished centralization. They relinquish party control. And, and, and they don't want to do that. They want to empower the state. They want to keep more control. So there is a, there's a guidebook to how to do this. They just don't want to read the guidebook or they read the guidebook and they don't like where it's going. So the biggest lesson I think you can learn is that it don't take for granted what they're saying. Ask, are they doing what they're saying? Are they, are they, are they walking the walk when they talk the talk? And on consumption, the answer for not just months, not just years, but longer than that has been no, hasn't. They have not been doing what they should be doing in, tor- in, ter- in terms of empowering domestic consumption. Before I go to Nasik, can you can you talk through a little bit more on the demographics? We always hear about demographics being poor in China, mm-hmm. but but talk through some of the, the hard data on that. Well, I mean, you've got this problem where you got a bunch of demographic headwinds, but the reality is the big issue is that China has gotten old before it got rich. So people love to make the comparison between China and Japan. And there's a lot of comparisons to be made, but the difference is that the Japan got rich and then it got old. And now you've got this sort of zombified economy and zombified economic system and it works in this peculiar fashion and they're okay with it because Japanese citizens are relatively well off. So they're okay with it. The problem with what China's facing is, you know, they haven't made the jump in incomes. They're, they're, it's still a relatively, you know, poor to middle income country and it's very old now. And you've got, you know, you look at any of these charts of working age population just falling in, in years ahead. You look at gender imbalance. You know, there's, there's too many males, not enough. You know, you, you talk about the idea that, you know, one child is going to be supporting two parents and, you know, four sets of grandparents. And, and how does that possibly work? You know, you want to, that goes back to our domestic consumption. How do you get people to spend when they're saving up to, to keep, you know, all these relatives above them in an inverse pyramid well, you know, well off and, and pay for their hospital care and pay for their old age. So you've got these, these enormous, enormous headwinds in the short term, what's not often appreciated is some of these things are actually helpful to China's ability to make a transition. If you've got fewer workers every year, then the dislocations from restructuring your economy are less. You have less potential for a jobs crisis. You know, you have more ability to to, to shift things around. So some of these headwinds are salutary. You know, they're, they're tailwinds for for the short term. But when you get in the midterm, really, it's it's, it's severe demographic headwinds. And, you know, the, the, the talking point for why everyone has had their own beliefs of whether China is going to rise or China is, is appearing a peak. But to the extent you, you look at the latter theory and you think China's peaking, it used to be all the talking points were about Chinese debt, debt, debt. And, and certainly talk about that. That's important. But I think top of the top of everything is, is demographics. And, and that's really what's going to hold them back if, if, if that's if that scenario plans out. So demographics are something that are are going to be just an enormous headwind for China going forward and in a much severe way than what we're seeing in Japan. Yeah, I think that's that, that's definitely a, that, that's definitely a, a, a good way of putting what I'm saying, because, you know, look, the, the problem here is that they, they've got to to figure out how to run an economy that's gone, that's basically been trained to run on, you know, enormous amounts of, of, of endless credit. You know, firms don't go bankrupt. You know, structured products don't default. Firms you don't have massive job losses. You know, you just keep people working. There's just not enough risk injected into the system. So part of this is you have to show that the government is not backstopping everything and, and that you can't have failure. And then then the idea is, OK, well, if once people believe that failure is possible, they'll start investing more sensibly. Firms that the, the Evergrands of the world that were based on you know pyramid schemes, they will crumble. 
and it, the economy will take a hit, but the it will not take a you know a, a systemic plunge. It, it won't want to go into contagion because they're going to control control this. They're going to control the slide, and and that's basically what they're doing. They're, they're trying to decelerate the the model because the current high levels of growth and certainly past levels of growth were just based on a model that simply will not work anymore. I mean, that's why we keep going back to the fact that China's economic growth model as we've all known it for years and years and years, is over. And they're moving to something different. So the, the answer is, can they get through this stage managed you know downshift without problems and the answer is no can they can they get out can they get, can they avoid a systemic crisis yes can they avoid a series of mini crises and investor panics along the way i don't think they can i don't think there's any group of humans in the world who could thread the needle on this without causing problems they're going to go too fast or they're going to go too slow and there will be problems and it's it, there'll be even more problems because when you look at the economy like do you trust chinese data so oh it's chinese data come out and say okay everything's okay well if you've been trained that to not trust these data because they've, they've given the wrong signals in the past, then investors cannot confident in, that they're getting the right signals from Chinese economic data. Then they're going to run screaming out of China anytime anecdotally they see things going wrong. You're seeing that in some in, in some ways right now. So this is this is sort of what something we predicted back in you know 2016 when there was that cri- you know there was a 2015 crisis which everyone thought was a crisis but what it really was you know we looked in our in our data and said this isn't a crisis this is everyone thinks it is because the stock market's gone down and there's been a bad PMI reading and everyone thought there was a devaluation anecdotally it scared people but nothing's really happening there was a perceived crisis and you know our data showed it wasn't a real crisis but then you know we got into 2016 and there was some capital outflow and a real panic and and you had a, you had what, what was not a big crisis but a, but a real panic real panic and that was that was real and what we said back then was you know every 18 months or so it's very likely china's going to have one of these panics because as they are stage you know as they are managing their economy to this to this downshifted restructuring it's going to be very hard to do it perfectly nobody can do that now we had a little bit of a respite during the trump trade war period because at a certain point i think chinese leaders looked at each other and said the most important thing right now is to rally around the flag and to resist the idea that we're weak with Trump's tariffs and, and this trade war. And so we're going to stop doing what we've been doing. And so there was a period in which you didn't see this China panic. They they, they supported the economy more than they wanted to. Now, but now we're back and they're, on, they're they're engineering the slowdown. And so we're at a point going forward that, you know, you're going to you're going to have bad news out of quite often. And some of it will be real and some of it won't be. But, you know, this is why we exist. You know, we want to provide what the real story is. You know, and sometimes things are better than, than than you think, and sometimes they're worse. But when you don't have visibility into what's happening in the economy, that's when people get in trouble because you can't base it on some growth model and some playbook that you learned when you were, you know, 15 years ago that you think still in place because because all that has changed. Yeah, sure it has. I mean, you bring up a very good point, which is. Everyone thinks that China is this black box economy. And sure, in some ways it is. But in others, you know, there's a lot of policies that were written about, you know, months, years, sometimes decades ahead of when they were done. And they're making very clear what their priorities are and, and the way they would like to make policy and the direction they would like to steer their economy and the way they would like to evolve you know, their economic model. You know, all this is out there. Now, most people aren't trained to go look at it and don't know what they're looking at if they did see it. But, you know, the reality is that this is a lot of these things are, are foreshadowed. So, you know, you want to talk about the uh, this this economic growth model debate. You know, I've been traveling to China. You know, I've been, I think I started traveling in the 90s, but, you know, I've traveled to China many, many times and had this discussion both on American soil and in Chinese soil with many 
Chinese economists, many Chinese you know officials, and said, "Look, here, here's what's happening. You may not want some you know, some guy from the West telling you how to run your economy, but here's what we see, and here's what you should do." And there are plenty of Chinese economists, and have been for many years, saying the exact same thing. One of the things that Liu He was was recognized as, you know, Xi Jinping's right hand man was recognized for years. He was he was highlighting these problems. He was he was one of a group of you know they were called reformers, which I'm not sure is the right name, who who were identified these problems long before they were acknowledged by, you know, more broadly. And the biggest problem with this is not that this debate doesn't happen in China. It does. It is It is very active and it has been for years. The problem is, is that China watching industry in the West has has focused on the China miracle. You know, the, everyone in China doing economic policy is a bunch of economic magicians. They can make numbers appear at 8% or 6.8% or whatever it might be forever. And so stop worrying about changes in models. Stop worrying about the politics. You know, just rubber stamp a number and just and just bank on it for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Now, all we dealt for, for the first five years we were up and running is people in the West saying this. And if you look at what even the IMF and World Bank are saying right now. You know, I, I spoke at a big conference in Singapore, you know, Bloomberg New Economy, and 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 you know, you, you meet people and and very sophisticated China watchers, and they're out there saying, "Look, China's going to go at five to six percent forever," and because they can and they want to. No, they're not. But you know, in the West, there's this belief that hey, we've seen them operate and defy economic gravity for so long, they can do whatever they want. Well. They didn't defy economic gravity. There were costs. And now there's a change. And the change is partly the end of the model as we know it. And it's partly the party guiding us to to to, to a safer place where there's going to be slower, healthier growth and where they can build you know, uh, a, a new social compact with the Chinese people. So a lot of big things are happening right now. And uh, a lot of it was foreshadowed in Chinese writings. You know, in Chinese speeches in the past, but that just stuff doesn't get reported in the West. All we heard about for like 10 years was investment banks, you know, railing on about, you know, 1.4 billion Chinese consumers. Everything should work in China because you'll sell 1.4 billion of them. And it was it was nonsense then. It's nonsense now. But that that's where we were. Yeah, we, we work with a lot of commodities firms now because, you know, we, we come at it from a different angle than people who are, you know, obsessing over day to day prices. And so we, we, we have we have we have very different views than some of them. And and, and look, the, the important thing here is to differentiate what's happening in the very short term with what with what the longer term dynamics we're seeing in China right now. You, know, you actually have two different things to worry about. On that one hand, you have a slowing economy, which is creating def- de- uh, disinflation. We're seeing disinflation in our in our recent April data. You know, we're not seeing inflationary pressures. We're seeing we're seeing pushes you know down on prices and other things in the short term. On the other hand, you know, you're creating a system of supply chain snarls. It's going to create inflationary pressure elsewhere. So you've got a whole bunch of dynamics, and people are trying to parse through what this means in the short term for commodities. Then they announce that you know all out fiscal stimulus, which which some of you might have heard. You know, we are we are skeptical they actually mean that. That's more of a you know talking up the market thing for the most part. But that, you know, that that sends prices up, and then you know you get a lockdown and sends prices down. It, it's it's not always easy to have a set thesis on that combines all these elements. But what you can do is look at the longer picture. And one of the reasons that we have been so loudly 
against this idea. You know, Goldman's always talking about a commodity super cycle. No, we don't. There's no commodity super cycle. There's never going to be a commodity super cycle in the near future. Now, was there going to be a commodities rally this year? Sure. I mean, we we said, look, you got to distinguish the fact that people are people have questions over the dollar. They've got they've got questions over supply chains. They've got questions over trade. You have all the conditions here for for a beautiful commodities rally, multi-year commodities rally. But when you're talking about a commodity super cycle, you cannot have a super cycle unless someone has this uh, definition of super cycle that I've never seen before. You cannot have a super cycle without foundational demand. And the foundational demand in the last super cycle was China. And China's going the other direction. So, you know, how much are they going to go and how fast are they going to go? Some of that story may be written right now based on based on what's happening and and how the shocks to the system from from COVID and lockdowns and, and slower growth. But overall, you are not going to see China as this foundational demand as you have in the past. It's probably going to be, you know, a, a factor that, that people over, overestimate even now. So you don't have this foundational demand. Where else are you going to have the foundational demand? It's not going to be the United States. You know, I hear, I hear India. Good luck with that. Anyone who's studied India knows knows the head, headwinds to, to that happening in a big way. You know, yes, there'll be a big move towards a green economy. Yes, there will be, you know, drivers out there which make more metals and more different commodities more, more valuable. But where's the foundational demand? And I don't I don't know anyone. I have not found anyone who does see it. Um, what people are seeing is a commodities rally in the short term and they're they're calling it a commodity super cycle for whatever reason. And, and that's that, that's something that we're not seeing. So differentiating the short term and, and, and the medium to long term here is important for us because we're seeing very different dynamics. Yeah, I think that's, that's maybe a good place to end it. So listen, for everybody that's been here, make sure you follow Leland, the China Beige Book, Twitter handle, check out Leland's research. Leland, I appreciate you spending the time and thank you to everybody that uh, participated here on the questions. It always helps me out when I have other people uh, <laughs> ask you questions. So thank you, everybody. And Leon, we'll, we'll be in touch. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.